is Murder, She Told, true crime stories from Maine, New England, and small town USA. I'm your host, Kristen Seavey. You can connect with me and suggest your hometown crime at MurderSheTold.com and follow me on Instagram at MurderSheToldPodcast. Crystal Lee Higgins was a total badass. She is an alley cat. She is a fighter, a survivor, said David Weaver, co-owner of Pleasant River Takeout where Crystal worked two summers in a row. Where most teenagers have a part-time summer job to make some extra spending money to cover gas and nights out with friends, 17-year-old Crystal held up two jobs in the summer and other jobs during the school year while still making time for the things she loved, hanging out with friends and talking on the phone, watching reality TV and SpongeBob, and watching the Red Sox play. Crystal had tickets to a game with her friend the following month, September of 2004, and she couldn't stop talking about how much fun Boston was going to be. This is Tara Skeet, one of Crystal's chosen family members. She was a force to be reckoned with. You know, she had fire and spunk, and honestly, she was probably the most level-headed friend that I had. (laughs) She was the type of person that she knew what she wanted, and she worked real hard to get it. She was a worker. You know, she, she wasn't afraid, you know, to, to do anything either. She, she was quick to learn and she wanted to help. Overall, she was a very driven person that had goals, you know, and she wanted better for her future. Crystal was friendly with everyone and always had a smile on her face, one that was genuine and one that never let on to the adversity she faced in her home life. She was one of the customer's favorite parts about picking up takeout or stopping by Elmer's Country Store to pick up pizza. She was upbeat. She did well in school while also playing basketball for the Columbia Falls Braves. She was reliable and responsible, and saying she was a hard worker is underestimating her. And she had dreams, dreams that would hopefully make her a formidable lawyer after she graduated from Narraguegas High School, class of 2005. But Crystal never got the chance to go to college to pursue her dreams. Crystal Higgins never even started her senior year at high school. So I'm Crystal's best friend. We had been friends since the fourth grade. Um, Her family moved here, I think, in like 1995. We almost automatically became best friends. And from that point on, we were, you know, pretty much inseparable. So many great memories just from our childhood, you know, we didn't live too far away from each other. And we went to the same grammar school. So we were together a lot, you know, school dances and secrets and, you know, our first crushes, you know, what we wanted to do when we grew up, which changed frequently for me. But she was pretty steadfast and, you know, wanting to be a lawyer. Though you wouldn't know it from the outside, Crystal had a tough home life. She was born in April of 1987 in Massachusetts and the family moved to the Down East area of Maine in 1995. There, she met Tara, and the girls instantly became friends. Crystal's parents got divorced when she was young, and her father remarried. She hadn't seen her birth mother since first grade. By the time Crystal was 16, she was legally emancipated from her parents. Around this time, in January of 2003, her father Tom went to prison for a string of motor vehicle violations a repeat offender. 
his release from Down East Correctional was slated for October of 2004. During the time he was in prison, he and Madeline filed for divorce. So she was 16 when she was emancipated from her parents. So I kind of feel that that speaks volumes about her character and her home life. Her father, Tom, had moved her sister and Crystal here from Massachusetts, and she never spoke of her birth mother, but a few times, and she always referred to her as Lisa, so I never really knew much about her. Tom, her father, remarried, and her stepmother, honestly, Kristen, was one of the worst people I've ever known to this day. You know, she had several stepbrothers um, and her sister, of course, Jessica. And there was no doubt that the stepbrothers were the favorite. You know, the dad would go to work and the stepmother would kind of keep things at home together, if you must. But, you know, I remember Crystal having to scrub the floors and the refrigerator for her to even be able to ask if she could come over. And then when she would ask her stepmother, Madeline, she'd often say no, like after Crystal had spent all day cleaning. When Crystal realized her stepmother wasn't making payments on their mobile home while her father was in prison, Crystal stepped in, paying $900 of her own money to prevent the bank from foreclosing. Three times it was under foreclosure, and each time it was stopped thanks to Crystal paying the bill. She just wanted a place for when her father got out of prison that her family could reunite. Her father, her sister, who was about a year younger, and her half-brother, TJ, who was eight in 2004. Her stepmother, Madeline, was not part of the invitation. You know, I think a lot of her childhood made her want to do better and be better. So I think that's where a lot of her drive came from. You know, she, she really, she wanted to do good in the world. After the state removed the siblings from Madeline's home, Jessica and TJ were placed in foster care and Crystal was emancipated, choosing to stay at the home of her friends until her father was released from prison. She lived with her friend Kristen, and then with another friend, Marnie Lesbines and her parents, and then with the Skeet family, hoping to move into her father's home in October. She was a sweet girl, said Deborah Skeet, Tara's mother. There wasn't a time she would leave the house and didn't say I love you and hugged you. In between living with Marnie and Tara, Crystal tried reuniting with her stepmother, but that only lasted a few days. Washington County Sheriff Joe Tibbetts told the Bangor Daily News everything she had she bought herself. She worked hard. One of Crystal's proudest moments was when she purchased her own car for $1,300, a 1997 gold two-door Chevy Cavalier. She even upgraded the music system inside to make her favorites, like Reba McIntyre and Kenny Chesney, sound even better. I think probably my favorite memory of Chris is when she bought her first car. I'll never, ever forget, you know, her driving in. She had a huge smile on her face and she was so proud because, you know, all, all of her hard work had paid off. The night of Saturday, August 7th, 2004, started out like a typical late summer night in Harrington. Harrington is part of this super rural town cluster on the northern coast of Maine, commonly referred to as part of the broader Downeast area. This little coastal town borders a meandering river that winds through the low flatlands of the region, eventually emptying into the Atlantic Ocean, but not before it widens into a brackish estuary with wide, silty banks and murky water. Definitely not a fun place for a swim. 
Marshville Road is right along the water. Harrington and surrounding areas are home to fishermen, lobstermen, and blueberry rakers, quintessential parts of the classic Maine economy. To see what the Harrington and Pleasant River area looks like, head over to MurderSheTold.com or click on the episode link in the show notes. The popular hangout for teens to meet up was at the Irvings, a gas station truck stop on Route 1, something I can totally relate to. Kids would meet up there and hitch rides to local hangouts, a gravel pit, or camps on Scudic Lake. This particular Saturday evening, a house party was in the works. Crystal was recorded that evening on Irving's CCTV footage. Around 9 p.m., 18-year-old Mitch Farron arrived at Irving's. He was a lobsterman, and he and Crystal had a thing. We weren't official yet, but we were heading in that direction, he later told the Sun Journal. He and Crystal had been friendly since Crystal was a freshman and he was a sophomore at Narraguegas, but since his graduation that June, they started hanging out more frequently. He reported that Crystal looked happy when he arrived. She was drinking Mountain Dew mixed with something, though what alcohol she was drinking has apparently changed over the years. It was later reported that she had a fifth of Bacardi rum, but Mitch recalled drinking Ice 101 with Crystal and a few other friends at another location. From my understanding, the group broke up around 11 p.m., and Crystal went to pick up a few friends at their homes in Harrington before meeting back up with everyone at a home on Marshfield Road. There are a few reports that differ slightly on the order of events of the evening. At 11.57 p.m., Crystal called her friend and co-worker from the Pleasant River Drive-In, Angela Ratcliffe. Angela didn't pick up, so she left her a message. This was Crystal's last known communication. Mitch said that after the group dispersed that he said goodbye to Crystal and went to stay at a friend's house. He later heard that Crystal dropped off the other boys in Harrington and nearby Columbia around 1 a.m., and he assumed that she returned home to the Skeet residence after that. But Crystal never made it home. I'm sure it's different for everyone, but as I remember it, at the time Chris was living with my family and I, I do remember it was a Saturday night, and I remember her with her hand on the doorknob, and she was asking if I was sure I didn't want to go out. And I had declined because I had to work the next day. I told her to call me, um, you know, or text if she wasn't going to come home. And the next morning when I woke up, she wasn't on the couch. And I was totally irritated with her. So I went off to work or whatever. And I vividly remember coming home. And the phone was ringing. And when I answered it, it was her boss. And she said she hadn't come to work. And I, my heart sank. You know, I immediately started calling people that she had been out with that night. And everyone had a different story. No one could give me the same answer. Um, or any answers at all. I mean, right from the word go, it was it was super suspicious and out of character for her. You know, I think maybe she had gone to the Irving and she went in and got something like a snack or something, but they, they weren't hanging there per se. They were headed to a house party on the Web District Road. And that, that's the last I heard. The next morning, Mitch woke up to two missed calls from Crystal, one at 1.15 a.m. and the second one 10 minutes later at 1.25 a.m. She didn't leave a message, something that he said Crystal usually did. She made about six or seven calls total around this time, some of which were to Marnie Lesbines, but she left no messages for any of them. She also dialed two incomplete phone numbers, which failed. 
the last call was placed at 1.48 a.m. When Tara got home from work the following afternoon, she reported Crystal missing. Crystal's car, her gold Chevy Cavalier, was nowhere to be found. Authorities and U.S. cellular technicians worked to identify where Crystal's calls were placed and later determined they were made about 12 to 24 miles northeast of a cell tower located in Millbridge, a nearby town. Her car's description and license plate number were sent out nationally just in case somebody spotted her or she got stopped or checked somewhere. In the early part of the week, more than 70 volunteers and police searched on foot for signs of Crystal or her car. Game wardens even did an aerial search to try to spot the car. They traversed over 1,000 miles of rural dirt back roads and woods over the course of four days, searching fields and ATV trails throughout Washington County. Searchers were hoping to find the car with Crystal inside. There were so many people that were helping you know, volunteering, whether they were walking just the roads or, you know, looking down trails on four-wheelers. The warden service was amazing. They, you know, they had their helicopters, but really in a small community, when something like this happens, the community really pulls together. Crystal was reliable and responsible. She wouldn't just take off without telling people where she was going, and she definitely wouldn't skip a shift. Fishermen donated the use of sonar scanners to help with the water search and point out places of interest, and divers followed the tide to search with underwater cameras. On the afternoon of Thursday, August 12th, Crystal's gold Chevy Cavalier was located about 20 feet from the boat landing in about 16 feet of high tide water. The car was upside down, and the driver's side window was partially rolled down. The car was also in reverse. There was still no sign of Crystal. The following day, the search for Crystal was curbed due to torrential rain and wind. But the community was still worried. What if she was hurt? What if she was abducted? Still, some searchers persevered, staying warm in the rain with hot chowder, sandwiches, and coffee provided by locals for the volunteers converging on Washington County. When Crystal went missing, it was the 8th of August. We had several volunteers just looking, you know, in the waters, along with the warden service. And a local man had his sonar equipment, and he had searched this river in Addison. And he swears that her car wasn't there. You know, so I mean, many locals, as well as myself, think there's no way that her car had been there the whole time. You know, her, her body was found the next day by a mother and her daughter that were just walking by. It was literally feet from where her car was found. There's just so many things that don't add up. Saturday morning, August 14th, the week-long search came to an end. Crystal's body was spotted around 9.30 a.m. She was floating face down about five feet from the shore and about 200 feet west from the boat ramp. To say the whole town was devastated is an understatement. Nobody thought she'd be in that river. Everyone was rooting for Crystal. Everyone was thinking about her when they woke up, hoping that today would be the day some good news came through. Everyone mourned the loss of this bright young light. Phil Van Brunt, a statewide volunteer for search and rescue who helped with the search, said, I didn't know Crystal, but I feel like I got to know her through the community for those days. 
Word traveled fast, and before Crystal got to Augusta for an autopsy, the whole Down East area knew about the devastating discovery. The last time her father talked to her was two days before she disappeared on August 5th. He told the Bangor Daily, The last thing she said to me was, Love you, Dad. See you next week. The next time Tom Higgins saw his teenage daughter was when he learned of her death through a fuzzy public access television set at the Down East Correctional Facility. In less than 50 days, he was planning to reunite with her, and if she had it her way, with her siblings too, at the mobile home she saved from the bank. Although the Department of Human Services said it had terminated parental rights for Tom and his ex-wife Madeline, Crystal was always thinking of ways to keep her small family of four intact. Tom said, My firstborn is gone. I never imagined her going before I did. Police didn't seem to think there was any foul play involved, but decided to wait until the autopsy and toxicology came back before making any official rulings. Given the fact that the driver's seat window was rolled down and controls were configured a certain way, we anticipate that she attempted to make an evacuation from the vehicle, said State Detective John Cody. It wasn't strange that she was here at the landing um, because, you know, we'd get takeout or whatever and we'd just drive down here and like sit and watch the water. But we never like backed in. So it was super weird that her car was in reverse. I, I don't know. There was just so many things that just didn't add up. Police suspected she was in Addison, the next town over from where she was living at the time, to see her romantic interest, Mitch, who lived there. They also speculated on why her body wasn't found with a car. Steve McCausland, spokesperson for the Maine State Police, said, It's a tidal cove. There's no way to tell where it was. But that was an area where divers had searched, and one possible explanation was she floated in with the tide overnight. And, you know, at low tide, it's low. I mean, even at high tide, it's not that high. Um, You know, you'd think that you would have seen oil surface. I mean, people fish this water every day in the summer. The state sent the toxicology to Clovis, California for testing at a forensics lab. And while they waited for the results, the town mourned their loss. A funeral for Crystal was planned at her high school's gymnasium. And for weeks leading up to it, the town collected donations, led by her employer at Elmer's County Store where she worked. Checks and donations poured in to support funeral costs from all over the country. But two men who knew Crystal's father stepped up to cover the funeral entirely, leaving other donations to go into a trust for her siblings, Jessica and TJ, when they turned 21, and also to establish a scholarship in Crystal's name. John Cholera, owner of JNS Carpentry, where Tom Higgins had worked for four and a half years, was one of the two donors splitting the cost. Right before she went missing in early August, Crystal visited John and asked if her father could get his job back when he got out of prison in October. Quote, We have made arrangements to pay for that because that girl deserves a decent funeral. I can't say enough about Crystal, who was an excellent person. End quote. Close to 450 people, including her father, who was accompanied by correctional facility staff, came together to share in one common loss. Kim Bailey Look, co-owner of Elmer's store where Crystal worked, told the Bangor Daily News, 
In a sense, she had no family, but really, she had more family than she knew. The autopsy was conducted on August 16th at 10.30 a.m., 48 hours after she was found, but the toxicology report wasn't completed until mid-October, two months later. The autopsy report is tough. I mean, I'm obviously not a medical examiner, but I feel like there was a lot that was left out. You know, to my knowledge, they didn't do a rape kit. Uh, They didn't test for any illegal substances aside from alcohol. That read 0.08, which is legal limit, you know, and it contradicted what everyone I had talked to that had been with her that night said, you know, everyone said that she was so drunk, she had done this, she had done that. And, you know, then you get the autopsy report back and none of it makes sense. Tara shared Crystal's autopsy report with me. And I asked my friend who was a death investigator and is now the anonymous host of Autopsy Podcast to help objectively answer questions I had related to certain points of her report. The toxicology report indicated that Crystal had been drinking. Her blood alcohol level, based on fluid samples most likely from her heart, came back as 0.08, which is the legal limit for driving, not a particularly high level. According to Maine State Police, she was possibly consuming coracidin, an over-the-counter cough and cold medicine which is sometimes abused, particularly by teens, as a recreational drug. The coracidin didn't show up on the toxicology report, but my friend told me that isn't something that would necessarily show up on a tox report. It was probably based on witness accounts, but I don't know if this was a rumor that got reported or something she actually did. He said that based on the descriptions of the organs and the body, the level of decomposition doesn't appear to be that bad, maybe early bridging on moderate, and consistent with being in water. There aren't any major issues with the organs. Oddly, to me, there didn't seem to be any water present in the lungs, so I asked about this and looked into it to understand how this could happen considering that her cause of death was drowning. He told me that water in the lungs doesn't really confirm anything as drowning, and that there isn't one unanimous piece of evidence that all drownings have. Water usually has to be inhaled into the lungs before death for it to show up in the lungs post-mortem. And according to unitypoint.org, in about 10-20% to of drowning deaths, autopsies reveal no water in the lungs. This is evidently known as dry drowning and is caused due to laryngospasm, which is when the body forcefully closes the airway in a situation where water is attempting to enter the lungs. The main problem during a drowning is lack of oxygen to the brain, as opposed to water in the lungs. It was noted that there was no physical trauma to the body before death. It is the duty of the medical examiner to determine cause of death. And because there wasn't any indication otherwise, the obvious cause was drowning. Detectives, armed with that info and in consideration of the fact that there were no defensive wounds, concluded that Crystal's death was an unfortunate accident. That's basically how it went the entire time. You know, there was never any talk of foul play or anything of the sort, aside from rumors. You wouldn't believe the people that had said, oh, we saw her car, you know, going out of town. They basically just chalked it up to an accidental drowning and, you know, she didn't have a family that really advocated for her. 
On paper, I can see why this case was ruled an accident. No trauma, evidence of alcohol, female victim's body found fully clothed, no witnesses. And given Crystal's driven personality and learning of her plans for the future, like reuniting with family in the trailer she helped pay for, the Red Sox game in September, and pursuing a career in law, I don't believe this was a suicide. The autopsy results are consistent with drowning, and the state of decomp is consistent with the length of time that she would have been in the water. But I'm still left with questions. Something doesn't feel right, but I can't quite put my finger on what exactly. I can tell you what I don't think happened. You know, I honestly don't think she drove her car into the river. I don't think it even accidentally went into the water. Um, I don't think her car was in the river for a week and no one saw it. I don't think that she was so drunk that she couldn't handle herself. There's so many things that I know that I don't agree with. For me to really put my finger on what I think happened um, is hard. I will say that it only makes sense to me that she met with foul play and someone overpowered her. I do think someone knows something. The only problem is, you know, with so many years gone by, we risk never knowing. You know, it, it's, it's so hard to say. On November 19th, 2015, a mysterious letter surfaced at a home on Webb District Road, a four-mile-long, sparsely populated road that is located near the town of Harrington and runs right by Crystal's high school. The letter definitely rocked my world. We've always said that someone knows something about what happened, and then 11 years later, um, you know, after her passing, this creepy letter shows up. And it was a woman that is active in the community. She found it on her lawn, just leaned up against a tree. So when she went to get her mail, she stopped and grabbed it, read it, and obviously immediately called the Maine State Police. The house where that letter was found is on the same road as the house party where Crystal was reportedly last seen alive the night she went missing. The letter is alarming, albeit a little confusing and hard to read. It's poorly written with a lot of misspelled words including Crystal's name. It's possible this was intentional. Some things are scribbled out, and some of the writing looks like it was done in a hurry. There is some explicit language in it. I'll include a photo of the letter on MurderSheTold.com, but here's Tara reading what it says. Crystal Higgins was murdered on a Webb District Road by a socio and psychopathic killers. They underlined, the police passed by her body. There's pre-exposure, sex offendered, don't let this predator wait for another murder. He's gonna sit and pick, you dumb fuck. There is nothing in the newspapers about this letter. It can only be found at a memorial page on Facebook for Crystal, and it's only known by locals and friends of the community. Why would a letter show up out of nowhere 11 years after this case had been closed? I spoke to the chief of police, the main state police, personally, and it was basically just swept under the rug, and he legit chalked it up, and I quote, to just some punk kids playing a prank. And, you know, the Main State Police couldn't lift any fingerprints from the papers, and it just basically got dismissed. I also went and sat down with a local sheriff, and where it was already given to the Main State Police, and it was their case originally, you know, his hands were tied, so he couldn't really help me much. Um, but I, I really don't think that anyone put a lot of stock into the letter. I want to circle back to the circumstances of Crystal's death and the discovery of her car and body. 
I've tried to make sense of this scenario and I simply can't. So I think Randy was actually like the last person to actually see Crystal. And he told me that he wanted to go with her when she was leaving and she said no. And she she was going to go meet up with someone else or something. So she ended up driving off without him. Um, but he was the last person to see her. Crystal was at a house party before. And then police theorized that after she left the party, she was on the way to see Mitch, the boy she was having a fling with. Mitch was one of the last phone calls Crystal made that night and lived a few houses down from the boat landing in Addison. He had also said that at some point in the night, they were hanging out at a boat landing with a group of people. How did Crystal get from this party to dead in the water? Everyone just said that she had uh, different things to drink. You know, some one person saw her drinking Ice 101. One person saw her drinking Bacardi. Like, you know, everyone said she was so messed up. And yet she got in the vehicle and made it to Addison, which is, you know, 15 miles away. You know what I mean? Like, it's just really weird. I don't know. No real story sticks out to me. Um, there were so many. You couldn't even decipher what was what. She was super responsible, you know, but we, we were kids. I do think, you know, maybe she had a few drinks and maybe she drove down to the landing, you know, and then maybe she, someone pulled in here. I just, I don't know. There's a lot missing. When Crystal's car was found, the two-door coupe had only the driver's seat window rolled three-quarters down. And police believe that she escaped the sinking car through that opening. After all, her body wasn't found in the car, but rather near the shore in the water a day later, close to where the car had been found. Crystal most likely didn't die in the car, but if she escaped through the window, how did she still end up dead? If the car had in fact been there since the night of the disappearance, would it have been an obstruction for the many fishermen who come in and out on a daily basis? Would they have seen it on their sonar systems? Would they have seen the car at low tide? What about her body? There was no other place of entry into the water nearby and neither skid marks on the pavement nor tire marks in the soft ground suggesting an accident were found. The only point of entry into the mouth of the Pleasant River, the end of the sinuous river that dumps into the Atlantic Ocean, is a concrete ramp for boat access next to the dock. Her car was found about 20 feet into the water. The water was about 16 feet deep at high tide and only 6 feet in low tide. I looked up the title information for that Saturday night, and it turns out that around 1 a.m., the tides were at their lowest point. Could she have drowned in six feet of water? Suppose that her car was backed into the water. Her 1997 Chevy Cavalier is front-wheel drive, meaning that the power from the engine is only delivered to the front wheels. If the point of driving the car into the water is to get it as far away from the shore as possible, this might explain why the car was driven in reverse. If the car were driven forward into the water, as soon as the front end of the car started to float, all of the power to continue moving into the water would be lost, as the front wheels would spin helplessly in the water. In reverse, you would gain an extra 8 feet or so to continue driving the car into the water before losing traction. If someone wanted to send the car to its watery grave but escape through the driver's seat, it would be possible in an automatic transmission to put the car in reverse, 
and while it was at a slow speed on the ramp, open the driver's side door, get out, and then close the door. But this car was a manual transmission. Once the clutch was let out and the car was in gear in reverse, you would need to apply some amount of gas for it to continue moving. Without depressing the gas pedal, the car would stall and come to a complete stop. So it seems that someone was in the cab, driving it into the water. A car is made primarily of steel and aluminum. The only reason a car floats in the water is the air pockets. The tires are filled with air. The gas tank, depending on how much fuel, the trunk, and most importantly, the cabin. It takes time for these air cavities to fill with water. And it's for that brief period of time that a car would float. The driver's side window was found three quarters rolled down and the other windows were fully closed, so it likely floated until the car sank enough for the water to come pouring through the driver's side window, at which point it nosedived and likely flipped upside down on the bottom, how it was ultimately found. Is it possible that Crystal drove headlong into the water, put the car into reverse after hitting the water, and then fled the sinking vehicle through the driver's side window that Saturday night? Absolutely. But what I cannot understand is why her body was not found in the cab. If she escaped the driver's seat, then she would have survived. Another thing that strikes me is a small detail from the autopsy report. She was found without shoes on. Was she driving barefoot? What kind of shoes was she wearing? If she had her shoes on and somehow drowned after escaping the car but before reaching land, why would her shoes be off? This case is technically closed. On paper, it was an accident. But for whatever reason, the Maine State Police won't let the family see Crystal's case file. Tara has considered private investigators and even mediums. But some of the answers she's looking for may be inside a file she's not allowed to see. I even went as far as getting a hold of her sister and having her sister get a hold of the medical examiner's office to get the, the autopsy, which we already had, but I just wanted to make sure it was the same. Um, and also the pictures that went with that, and they would not release them to even her. I don't know what happened to Crystal Higgins, but I wish I could figure it out. If she were killed by somebody, whether on purpose or as a result of some unfortunate circumstance, my wish for her friends and family is that someone would come forward with more information. If this truly was a motor vehicle accident, I wish there was a better explanation of what exactly happened that night, that the investigation provided answers. Crystal was only 17 years old. She never got to graduate and see her dad get out of jail. She didn't get to become a successful lawyer or have a family of her own. Crystal Higgins had only just begun her life. She was definitely going to be somebody. You know, she was going to be a shining star, you know, in this world, and she was going to do amazing things. 16 years later, she's still the most influential person in my life. She was a good kid. She definitely didn't deserve what happened to her. Every time a family member or friend of a victim tells me they don't want their loved ones forgotten, my heart breaks. It's a reason why including them in these stories is so important to me. 
but seeing the impact Crystal made on the Down East community in such a short amount of time cements the idea to me that she won't be forgotten. Crystal Higgins was an incredible and selfless young woman, and her memory lives on through the lives of those who loved her. I hope one day there will be a better understanding of what happened that night. Until then, her friends and loved ones will never stop pursuing the truth. Hopefully one day that truth will surface and Crystal Higgins can finally be put to rest. I want to thank you so much for listening. I am so grateful that you chose to tune in and I couldn't be here without you. My sources for this episode include Crystal's autopsy report provided by Tara and articles from the Bangor Daily News, the Sun Journal, and the Portland Press Herald. A very special thanks to Tara Skeet for sharing her personal stories with me and to Autopsy Podcast for sharing their knowledge. Special thanks to Byron Willis for his research and writing support. Murder, She Told is co-produced by AKA Studio Productions. All links for sources and media for this episode can be found on MurderSheTold.com linked in the show notes. You can also connect with me on Instagram at MurderSheToldPodcast. If you loved this episode, please consider sharing it with a friend and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It's one of the best ways to support an indie podcast. If you are a friend or family member of the victim or anyone connected to this story, you are more than welcome to reach out to me at MurderSheToldPod at gmail.com. If you have a story that needs to be told or would like to suggest one, I would love to hear from you. My only hope is that I've honored your stories in keeping the names of your family and friends alive. Murder She Told will be back next week with another episode. Thank you for listening. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.